way, when I was praying, if you want, certainly you don't have to answer the question, but if you are unemployed, raise your hand, okay? And if you would consider yourself underemployed, raise your hand. Okay, great. So we pray, I pray that for you, and I pray that God is going to minister to you. And by the way, when you get that job, let me know. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, it says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. The second chapter of 1 Peter begins with the believer's privileges. In verses 1 through 10, we are children in God's family, verses 1 through 3. We are stones in God's temple, in verses 4 through 8. We are citizens in a new nation, in verses 9 and 10. But just because we are citizens of heaven doesn't mean that we don't have earthly responsibilities. We discover that in verses 11 all the way through verse 25. We submit to human institutions and Ordinances in verses 11 through 17. The believer is called saint in this chapter, citizen in this chapter, but we're all servants, and we discover that as well. Bob Dylan didn't have so much a famous song, but it was an interesting song. It didn't really hit the charts and it didn't do well, but he came out with a song in the 80s called You've Got to Serve Somebody. Everybody has to serve somebody. (laughs) Dylan's saying, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're still going to have to serve somebody. And he was right. As a matter of fact, Jesus in the New Testament draws attention to the fact that you are a servant to that which you give yourself to. And if it's sin, then you're a servant to sin and to Satan. And if it's to the Lord, then you're a servant of the Lord. Peter's attention turns from submission to the state to what it means to be subjects of servants and masters. He's talking about submission on the job. And Peter begins with the requirement, submission, and then continues with the reason that what we might call the persecution factor, and then concludes what, with what we might call the provocation factor. The persecution factor and the provocation factor is submission so that you don't get in trouble, but also so that you can honor God. Remember, one of the great themes in First Peter is the issue of suffering. And remember, suffering really falls into two kinds of categories the kind we bring on ourselves and the kind that we don't necessarily bring on ourselves. And so, he gives the mandate for submission in verse 18, the motive for submission in verses 19, and also in verse 20 and verse 21. And the motivation for the believer is in the short phrase, for this finds 
favor, or literally, this is a grace. God is pleased with believers who do their work in a humble and submissive fashion for those who have placed God in their lives and who have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament makes it abundantly clear that your real employer is the Lord. We as Christians are to fulfill our responsibilities on the job with the right attitude. In other words, God cares not just simply about your work, but about your heart. Now, I remember I had a job one time where my boss said to me, I don't care about your heart. I just care that you do the job. If you hate me and if you hate God and if you love Satan and if you sacrifice children at midnight, I don't care. Just so long as you do your job. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God doesn't just simply care about what it is that you do with your hands, but also what you're doing with your heart. And so in verse 18, the servant submits in fear. Look what it says. Servants, be submissive to your masters. Now, who are these servants? Servants in the first century, when Peter is writing these words, consisted of both slaves and freed people who still retained employment in households. By the way, the Greek word translated servant here is a very specific word. It's oiteai. It comes from oikos, which was the Greek word house. And since Peter adds the word masters, these are household servants or household slaves. And because they're household servants and household slaves, some would have been true slaves and some would have been true stewards as a matter of fact, some had what we might call a, a sort of a semi-permanent status. They didn't have legal or economic freedom, but they were paid for their services. Household services would often be paid for their, their services and would have an opportunity to purchase their own freedom. Now you can imagine in the world of the New Testament, when the gospel began to go forth and to go forward, it was very appealing to people who were slaves. In the New Testament, neither Peter nor Paul attack and condemn the institution of slavery. And the failure of the New Testament to attack and condemn slavery has generated a great deal of debate. They ask and answer the question, well, why is it? Why, why doesn't the, the Bible just come right out and say what we all know slavery to be? Wicked, evil, pernicious. But both Peter and Paul encouraged slaves to live their lives as devoted Christians and to seek the opportunity to obtain their liberty if at all possible because both Peter and Paul sensed that what Jesus said about slavery was the most important issue and that the most important issue isn't human institutions of slavery but the supernatural enslavement that takes place because people's hearts are enslaved to sin. What people need more than anything is freedom from sin and the opportunity to have a right relationship with God. And Jesus knew and Peter knew and Paul knew that with the change of heart would, would come the change of social constructs. As a matter of fact, 
William Barclay gives us a glimpse into the world of slavery in the first century. He writes, and I quote, In the time of the early church, there were as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. I'm going to pause for just a moment and remind you that the Roman Empire stretched from Britain all the way through Europe, the Iberian Peninsula, Italy, all the way through its modern Greece and Syria and Turkey, through the Mediterranean, all the way around the northern edge of the the African coast. And so the Roman Empire was a gigantic empire with probably between 200 and 300 million people. Barclay writes, it was by no means only menial tasks which were performed by slaves. Doctors, teachers, musicians, actors, secretaries, stewards were, were slaves. In fact, All the work of Rome was done by slaves. Roman attitude was, there's no point in being the master of the world and doing your own work. Let the slaves do that and let the citizens live in pampered idleness. The supply of slaves would never run out. Slaves were not allowed to marry, but only cohabitated. And the children born of the relationship of that cohabitation were the property of the master, not the parents. Just Like lambs born to the sheep belong to the owner of the flock and not the sheep. It would be wrong to think that the lot of slaves was always wretched and unhappy. But make no mistake about it, for many it was wretched and unhappy. And that they were always treated with cruelty, but often they were. Many slaves were loved and trusted members of the family. But one great inescapable fact dominated the whole situation. In Roman law, a slave was not a person, but a tool or a thing. He or she had absolutely no legal rights whatsoever. For that reason, there could be no such thing as justice where a slave was concerned. Peter Chrysologus sums the matter this way, quote, Whatever a master does to a slave, undeservedly, in anger, willingly, unwillingly, in forgetfulness, after careful thought, knowingly, unknowingly, is judgment, justice, and law, unquote. By the way, in regard to a slave, his master's will, even his master's caprice was the only law, unquote. Now, you have to understand something. Slaves who ran away would sometimes be recovered, and when they would be recovered, they would take a brand and they would brand an F on their forehead. The F stood for fugitivus. We get the word fugitive. Now, a master typically couldn't kill a slave without a court order. If there was a limit, if there was some social construct or legal right that a slave had, the slave couldn't necessarily arbitrarily be put to death, but that wasn't always followed. And so again, when you think about this passage, before we even address the issue of the passage, we have to address the issue of what we've already talked about. Why doesn't the New Testament writers expose, condemn, vilify it? And it would have been easy for those who became Christians to think that, hey, look, 
Remember, I am now the citizen of a different world. Jesus Christ has saved me. Christianity has given me freedom. And because I have freedom, I now have the ability to break from the social constructs in which I find myself in. But this wasn't so. Christianity would come and eventually saturate the culture by the end of the second century. And as a matter of fact, there would come a point in the Roman Empire's life where the slaves would outnumber the free people. But I'm going to tell you something. Christianity, the origin of the Christianity, the proliferation of Christianity, the permeation of Christianity, and even the change of heart that took place in the New Testament and in the centuries that followed the New Testament didn't bring slavery to an end. Do you know what did bring slavery to an end? A wicked emperor named Diocletian. In the middle of the second century, Diocletian issued an emancipation proclamation and freed every slave. Do you know why he did it? Because the empire was on the verge of collapse. The reality is only citizens paid taxes. And when he freed the slaves, guess what? Every slave became a citizen and a... That's exactly right. They weren't motivated by altruism or decency. The government was motivated by the economy. And that, my friends, is the rest of the story. Now, how does this translate in the real world in which we live? Because we don't have slavery. Now, there are forms of slavery that exist on the planet Earth. Whatever it means, it must mean that we follow and obey the instructions of the person who is our supervisor or the person who's been placed over us. Are there limits to submission? Now remember what we've already talked about. There are limits of submission to the government. There's going to be limits here to the submission of the employer. And later in 1 Peter chapter 3, even in the marriage when wives are called to submit to their husbands, there's limits to submission. And what are the limits of submission? Whether to the government or to your employer or to your husband for that matter. And the, the limits, of course is we follow and obey, but we do not follow and obey when we are ordered to commit crimes, when we are ordered to disobey the scriptures. We are under no obligation to obey an illegal or an immoral command. But again, when we disobey an illegal or immoral command, we have to be willing to face the consequences. Now, so the general principle is we obey those that God has placed over us. There was a recent graduate who was looking, who was asked if he was looking for work, and he thought for a moment and he said, I'm not really looking for work, but I am looking for a job. <laughs> See, now you, you laugh because for many people, work is something that they do not want to do. Times are always hard for those who seek soft jobs. This sign was posted on an office bulletin board. It said, would you like to find out what it's like to be a member of a minority group? Try putting in an honest day's work occasionally. 
It was Indira Gandhi who wrote, my grandfather once told me that there are two kinds of people. She didn't say Italian people and non-Italian people. She's from India. She says, my grandfather told me there are two kinds of people, those who do the work and those who take the credit. He told me to try to be in the first group. There's a whole lot less competition there. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's safe to say that there are two kinds of people. Those who really do want to work and those who don't want to work. And what they do is they challenge. They said if the work damages, degrades, humiliates, exhausts, or persistently bores me, they don't want to do it. People want work to be interesting and satisfying and people put on their resume how they'd like to utilize their valued skills and provide opportunities for others. They want their job to enhance rather than impair their other life circumstances. In other words, they want their job to enhance their circumstances a father, mother, spouse, parent, citizen, friend. Clearly, they want to earn a living wage and have a comfortable life. Who doesn't? All of those things make sense, but people rarely seek work as an opportunity to glorify God and to honor God. As a matter of fact, when faced with the scripture that they read here in verse 18, servants be submissive to your masters with all fear. We live in a culture and a society that it immediately comes into our mind, why should I? Why should I? And the reason why we say why should I is because we are a culture that's informed mostly not by moral obligations or biblical obligations, if we have one moral obligation left in our society, it's equality. We live in a world that has abandoned moral obligations. There's only one great central obligation that's left in our culture, and that's tolerance. And it's to provide equal rights for everyone. Few people speak of sacrifice or privilege or obligation. And when you speak of sacrifice privilege or obligation almost never does the subject of the Bible come in or Christ come in. We speak of rights. We speak of reproductive rights, immigrant rights, homosexual rights, workplace rights. If people don't get what they think that they need or deserve, they protest, they picket, they strike, they boycott, they mount a political rebellion. And the protest is usually motivated by the belief that everyone is equal in every way and entitled to exactly the same thing as everybody else. And I almost can bet you that almost everybody listening to the sound of my voice believes exactly that way, including you, because you've been immersed, baptized, and saturated in a culture that basically, when they read this text for and we'll read it again. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fears. There is something that bristles inside of you because the idea of actually deferring to someone else's authority or power is absolutely 
indescribably distasteful to you. But here's what the point that the Bible is giving. In each and every example that it's going to give, in our relationship to government and human institutions, in relationship to the job, and in relationship to our personal relationships, God, from God's perspective, sees that your existence on the planet Earth isn't to support and include, if you will, the, 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 the dominant issue isn't your rights, but rather how is God perceived in the circumstance that you find yourself in and how is God honored and what is this going to do in order to further the gospel and bring Christ into the circumstance? That's the point. We live in a world where a job is considered a right rather than a privilege. And the Bible teaches that even unbelievers work in order to provide for their families. Jobs provide the means whereby we can provide some product or service. We want to be able to earn money so we can provide for our family. And that's not wrong. And to minister to the needy. And that's not wrong. And to help finance the task of bringing the gospel to the world. And that's not wrong. All of that is good and noble and commendable. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that your first holy obligation is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the glory and the honor of God. That's the point. Peter adds, servants be submissive to your masters with all fear. Now, the word that's translated fear is going to be a very familiar word to you. It's the Greek word phobos. And when you hear the word phobos, what's the word that comes to your mind? Phobia. And in our culture and society, phobia is an irrational fear. But here, the word phobos doesn't mean an irrational fear. It means a healthy Fear. It's the kind of fear that you get when you're at a heavily trafficked street and you look both ways and when the oncoming traffic is coming down on you, you look before you cross the street. You have a healthy fear because you understand that if you walk in front of a moving vehicle, you could die. Yesterday I was sort of cruising through the area of my backyard, I was making my way down a trail and a snake jumped out. And the person who was walking with me goes, Ooh! and he looked at me and he said, I hate snakes. He has a healthy fear of the reptile. Now, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about a healthy fear. There's a great divide and the divide isn't between the liberal or the conservative. It's the divide between those who are concerned with obedience or disobedience to God and to God's will. The divide is between those who believe hope lies in this present government and this present world system or the hope 
that is found in having a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We labor fearing the Lord. This is the mark of the Christian. We understand and accept that our ultimate work performance evaluation doesn't come from our immediate supervisor, but from the living Lord of the universe. We know that we're going to be judged as good and faithful servants, or we are going to be judged as slothful, lazy, unfaithful servants. We are going to be stewards of the trust that God has entrusted us to, and we are going to be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ as our supervisor. The Christian is aware that the Lord is watching. The Christian is aware of how diligent we are or how diligent we aren't, and that God rewards faithfulness and diligence. And by the way, God does reward faithfulness and diligence. And almost every job that we really do enter into, if you are faithful and diligent in your job, you may be rewarded. The chances are much more greater that you will be rewarded than if you are unfaithful and not diligent. And so the servant submits to both fair and unfair masters. Look what Peter writes, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Peter anticipates the objection. Well, look, I can see submitting and, and giving reverence and respect if the person is nice. If the person gives me respect, I'll return respect. But if the person doesn't give me respect, I won't return respect. But that's not what the scriptures say. Peter says, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. By the way, that word harsh can mean cruel. It can mean unfair. As a matter of fact, the Greek word translated harsh is scolios. Have you ever heard of scoliosis? Scoliosis is the curvature of the spine. It's when your back begins to bend in a, in a way that is inconsistent with what God intended for your anatomy to do. So this particular Greek word, scolios, meant bent, crooked, perverse. Now you've got to understand something. Remember what I've already shared with you. 60 million people were household slaves. The good and the gentle master might provide fair wages, might provide decent housing, and might provide treatment like a decent human being. The harsh master might use his or her power to bully, to inflict severe punishment, may even represent not getting paid fairly, may even withhold wages, may force the slave to live in unsafe or unsanitary conditions or have unreasonable expectations. We live in a culture and a society that if your employer bullies you, inflicts severe punishment, doesn't pay you fairly, withholds your wages, or forces you to work in unsafe or unsanitary conditions or have unreasonable expectations, our immediate response is fight back. And you might be thinking, are you saying that if you're working under severe circumstances, unsafe and unsanitary conditions, if, the, if your employer has unreasonable expectations that you're not supposed to fight back? Let me just be very clear here. We live in a culture and a society where we are graced mercifully by laws that protect us. 
Can your employer commit crimes against you? No. Are there legal remedies if you find yourself working in unsafe, insecure, illegal circumstances? Of course. I'm not talking about put yourself voluntarily in danger and hope for the best. What I am talking about is the attitude of your heart in relationship to the job that you have because if your first and foremost response is protest rather than respect, if your first response is rebellion rather than bringing God's grace and God's mercy and God's love to the circumstance, then you're missing the point. Because the point that Peter is trying to make is that for many people, their only opportunity to hear the gospel and to hear about the hope that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ is you. Many of you have bosses that won't come to Calvary Chapel by any stretch of the imagination. They'll never listen to the radio program. The only opportunity that they have to hear the gospel is the way that you live your life. That's what we're talking about. Just like it's a blessing to work for employers who are fair and just and generous, but sometimes we take certain things for granted. We think that we should be given special treatment because we're Christians or preferential treatment because we're Christians or that because we're a Christian we're allowed to slack off or that our employers should be lenient with us because we're Christians or we should be given more consideration because we're Christians or that our employer has no right to correct us or rebuke us for inefficiency or mistakes and you would be wrong. Slaves in the Roman Empire faced a special temptation to despise or be disrespectful to his or her master. Imagine the slave whose master receives Jesus and then comes to the conclusion because the master has become a Christian that right at that very moment he or she should be granted their freedom or at least better treatment or at least easier treatment and but on the contrary the believing slave was to become the best worker that he or she could possibly be for Christ's sake not for the master's sake we sometimes think it's the condition of being master or being slave that serves as the best indicator of what your life and your relationship with the Lord is going to be, but nothing could be further from, for the tr- from the truth. But th- the believing Christian, whether master or slave, was to do his or her best in spite of the condition, in spite of the environment, in spite of the circumstances. Those things have nothing to do with stewardship, with faithfulness or honor. Remember, Joseph was a slave in Potiphar's house. Daniel was a slave in Nebuchadnezzar's house. I find it remarkable that the only two characters in the Bible where there's no negative reference or rebuke ever made were slaves in foreign circumstances. Well, what about the Christian whose employer is unfair or cruel or overbearing or crooked? Paul writes about it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and his doctrine may, be, may not be blasphemed. 
Now think about this for just a moment. Why does Paul write so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed? Again, Christians forget that your job isn't simply a job. Your job isn't simply a mechanism whereby you get money. Your job isn't just a tool to pay the rent or to pay the mortgage or to pay the taxes or even to give to the church or to give to the work of the ministry. Your job is a witness. Your job is a stewardship. Everything that you do, every time you do it, you're doing it to the glory of God. The Lord God wants all people to be one to Jesus, no matter who they are, no matter how weird they are, no matter how wicked they are, no matter how cruel they are, no matter how unfair they are. Now think if you start from the premise, this person is weird, this person is wicked, this person is cruel, and this is the issue. The issue is they're weird, wicked, and cruel to me, and it's got to stop. And God says, guess what? That's not the overarching issue from my perspective. The person is weird and wicked and cruel because they're a hopeless sinner lost in their wickedness and their sin, estranged from God, detached from God, distant from God, on their way to hell. And here's what I want from you. I want you to love them and I want you to pray for them and I want you to be the best worker that you can possibly be to the glory of God so that no matter what else happens, this person might think, well, this person's going to think that I'm a doormat and all, I, all they can do is walk on me. They may think that. By the way, do you think that unbelievers can survive under those circumstances? What do you think the answer is? I think the answer is No. And the reason why I think that the answer is no, because most Christians don't survive under those circumstances. And so the Bible gives us a whole different expectation. This is a bitter pill. This is a bitter pill for many people to swallow. But your rights in the workplace, your happiness in the workplace, is not God's the highest thing on God's agenda. If a person doesn't work a full day's work, if a person steals from his or her employer, if a person dishonors the Lord Jesus Christ, if the person is lazy, if the person is slothful, if the person wastes time, if the person is disrespectful, if the person is selfish, if the person is rude, then you're not living a life that's any different from any unbeliever. Oh, by the way, Is it possible that the unbeliever could be diligent? Is it possible that the unbeliever can do their job? Is it possible that the unbeliever doesn't waste time? Is it possible that the believer can be, or the unbeliever can be respectful and and selfless and committed? What do you do in a circumstance where you have a so-called believer and a so-called unbeliever and the unbeliever does everything that the believer refuses to do. And the boss is left with the impression, how is being a Christian making any difference in your life? 
By the way, that's what happens. The unbelieving employer winds up with the conclusion that God really doesn't make a difference. And that's the point that both Peter and Paul are making. They wind up blaspheming the God of the Bible and the teaching of the gospel as being at best irrelevant and at worst pure hypocrisy. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 5, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. That means slaves by choice, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord, and not to men, knowing that whatever good does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Paul's instructions are, if you're a slave, you're a slave for Jesus. And if you're free, you're free for Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. And some people will look at this verse and think, you're kidding. You're kidding. This is in the Bible? For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief and suffer wrongfully, why do you suppose a person would come to the conclusion that this is a joke and that the Bible is kidding? Because they can't imagine enduring grief and suffering wrongfully for any reason whatsoever. By the way, do you think enduring grief and suffering wrongfully was the lot of slaves in the first century? What do you think? I think you're right. Remember the overarching theme of this book. It's suffering. It's holding up under suffering. It's being able to go forward under suffering. And so when he writes, for this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, Peter says conscience toward God is one of the reasons why Christians will suffer wrongfully. And so if the person says, I'm a Christian and I don't want to suffer wrongfully, then guess what? Prepare to be disappointed. Jesus said in the world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. If you decide to honor the Lord in the world in which you live, if you decide to honor the Lord on your job, if you decide to honor the Lord in your family, almost certainly you're going to suffer. As a matter of fact, the Greek word for conscience is a word that means together. It, it actually had the idea of self-awareness or consciousness. And by the way, when the Stoics developed the idea of this word, it came to mean self-awareness, self-judgment, what we might even call conscience. And one translating problem with this particular passage is that the word is followed by the word theia, of God, and it's preceded by the word dia, on account of. The NIV translates this, I think, rightfully, because he is conscious of God. In other words, for this is commendable because 
if this person is aware of God, here's the idea that it isn't the government and it isn't your employer who's going to ultimately bring to fruition the rightness or the wrongness of the injury that's, been, that's happened to you. There's a God in heaven who judges rightly every single time and who keeps an account and that your life doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. And that's the idea. In other words, this makes sense. If we see our grief and we evaluate our suffering through the lens of God's goodness and God's grace and God's mercy. A friend of mine, Ginger Delgado, um, had a, a newscast on Fox not too long ago and told the story of two brothers. And one brother was so hopelessly sick, his liver was dying. And one of the, his younger brother volunteered to, to donate 60% of his liver in order to save his brother's life. And they operated on both of them, the donor and the recipient. The recipient received the liver and the donor, the young brother, died as a result of his injuries. And when he died as a result of his injuries, his father, his father had the difficult task of telling the brother who survived, who's already feeling guilty, number one, about being sick, and number two, of the selfless sacrifice that his brother gives. And his father has to tell him, Your brother didn't make it. And you know what were the first words out of the father's mouth? It wasn't, your brother's died. It's, I need you to know something. God is good. Our God is a good God. He's a gracious God, a merciful God, a loving God. Our God is a good God. And your brother has died. And you can imagine the visceral response. Because when something tragic happens, when suffering occurs, your first inclination that it isn't good. A.T. Robertson writes, suffering is not a blessing in and of itself, but if one's duty to God is involved, then one can meet it with a gladness of heart. There's rhyme. There's reason. There's a substantial mercy that's associated with your willingness to do what's right rather than wrong. And in verse 20, look what it says. For what credit is it in when you are beaten for your faults? You take it patiently. Now, employers are no longer legally allowed, tragically, to beat their employees. <laughs> By the way, the word beaten comes from a Greek word which means to hit with your fists. So if you read this and you're thinking of a belt or a whip or a lash or some pole, but th this is true. In that culture and in that society, people would be beaten for their faults. The point that Peter is making to both the believer and the unbeliever, that both believers and unbelievers can and should bear discipline and punishment for their faults. That there's no benefit if you suffer because you did something stupid or wrong because you were lazy or slothful or irresponsible we are to be concerned and caring and productive 
In Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, Paul writes, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that it is from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he does. And there's no partiality. When Paul writes there's no partiality, he means that God is no respecter of persons. And when he writes, And whatever you do, do it heartily, Doing something heartily in the New Testament means you're doing it from the innermost source of your being. You're doing it from your heart. You're doing it from your soul. There's a story about the famed English architect Sir Christopher Wren. He was directing the building of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And some of the workers being interviewed by a journalist asked them, Hey, what are you doing here? And the first said, I'm cutting stones for three shillings a day. The second replied, I'm putting 10 hours a day on the job. The third replied, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren build the greatest cathedral in Great Britain for the glory of God. That's what we're looking for. That's what will change your perspective. What is it that you're doing? How would you describe your job? Are you working in partnership with Jesus Christ to build an even greater building than a cathedral, but to be a part of the living stones? I read a copy of W.A. Criswell's weekly column. It was written years ago when our United States of America only had 200 million people, but here's what he wrote, quote, The population of this country is 200 million. 84 million people are over 65 years of age, which leaves 116 million to do the work. People under 20 years of age total 75 million, which leaves 41 million to do the work. There are 22 million who are employed by the government, which leaves 19 million to do the work. Four million are in the armed forces, which leaves 15 million to do the work. Deduct 14,800, that's the number of state and city office employees, that leaves 200,000 people to do the work. There are 188,000 people in hospitals and insane asylums, so that leaves 12,000 people to do the work. Not that you may be interested, there are 11,988 people in jail, so that just leaves you and me to do the work. And I'm tired of carrying the whole load myself. There's an invitation to work. And there's an invitation to do it for the glory of God and to expand the kingdom. Every ounce in your body is going to want to do it the way of the world. And every ounce in your soul will cry out to you to honor God that your job is way more than a job. It's the position and the stewardship that God has entrusted you with for his glory and for his honor and for his testimony. So let me pray for you again. Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone who has a job. Lord, I pray that they would use their job in such a way that they will honor you and glorify you. That the testimony of Jesus Christ might be made known. And Lord, I pray for the unemployed and the underemployed. I pray, Lord, that you'd get them a job. A job where they could exercise 
faithfulness, diligence, in the stewardship that you've entrusted to them and that they would be aware constantly that the job exists for the glory of God and the furtherance of the kingdom and the testimony to a watching world about the goodness of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God. And Lord, I know that for many of us, it's going to be very difficult for us to adjust our thinking but Lord, I pray that you would be patient with us and that, Lord, you would continue to use us in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.